Simon, can you come up? Thank you very, very much for coming, everybody. I'm really delighted to see you. Thank you to those who've come, who've cancelled meetings and uh, who've rushed to be here, Will Gardner, um, and others. It's really lovely to have you, and it's a delight to have Simon. He's a very close friend of Mark and mine. And Simon, if you could stand up, I'd like to pray for you before you speak to us. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for Simon. Thank you that he can testify to the way that you have moved in his life and in the lives of many people in Burundi. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will open our eyes and open our ears as we hear what he's got to say. We pray that you'll anoint him and that you'll speak to us through him today. Amen. 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 Well, it's great to be with you guys. I'll echo uh, Charlotte's thanks for, for coming out here on a weeknight, and I know we lead busy, stressful lives, and so it's a, it's a real delight for me to be with you guys. Um, how this evening will go, I'm basically going to show a few pictures, and then I'm going to take a verse in the Bible and share ten choices that uh, Burundi has taught me to make pretty much daily, and, but I think they're choices that all of us have got to make. Uh, funny enough, I've, written, I've just written a book on, on choices, uh, and uh, so um, that's a daily devotion. So that's 365 choices in a year. It's a call to radical discipleship. But I'm just taking 10 more broad choices that I hope will apply to all of us. We, we live in very different circumstances. I live in a, a war zone, or praise God now, a post-war zone, Central Africa, which couldn't be much further removed from Wanish. Um, and yeah, I hope we're all going to see tonight that there's, there's a battle going on here. And you can't sing literal bombs, are you? But uh, I can see them very clearly, the bombs falling on Wanish of uh, apathy or materialism or lots of isms, aren't they, in our culture, relativism, pluralism, all those things. And, and actually, they're more effective over here because they enable us to drift off spiritually quite easily. Whereas if you think you're going to die tomorrow, you're, you're very alert and awake. And that has been my context. And that hasn't been the context in extremists in the last... Uh, eight, eight or so years, but I went out there expecting to die. I went out when I was in, in 1998. I was 24 years old, and then I did expect to die. So I, I've learned lessons on the, on the coal face, which are, are very black and white and extreme, but actually I think they apply very much, just as much over here, if we've got eyes to see and uh, ears to hear. So I'll give a bit of a context on Burundi, and I'll share a bit of our work, and then we'll look at what the scripture says. Is that all right? And we're saying 45 minutes, so don't need to clock watch. Uh, I'll I I be obedient to that. Uh, where that red arrow is, some, some of you know this, some of you don't, but, but that's probably the most horrific part of the globe. There's over 5 million people who have died in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo in the ongoing conflict there. When I deal with women out there, um, their routine experience is that they've been raped. Uh, it's been used as a tool of war. It's absolutely desperately grim. And uh, so it's very dark. It's, it's very... Grim, but it is in the darkest places that the light shines brightest, right? So, so we, br we, are, we bring light into the darkness, and we are agents of the kingdom of light piercing the darkness. And it's an incredible privilege to live and work out there. Uh, sadly, that's what the whole area is known for. So you see that, that Mary sort of symbol there. People said, you know, what was wrong with Rwanda and Burundi? Non, you know, they were, they were Catholic, mainly Catholic countries, Christian countries. Uh, but sadly, it was, it was superficial. It wasn't deep. And people were in packed churches on Sundays shouting, yes, Ashima, yes, Ashima, praise God, and then taking their machetes on Monday and using those uh, in very misguided, uh, whipped-up frenzies from, from the radio, which is easy to do with uneducated people when they fear that the other people can do that to them. That was the context. And, and people said, how could this happen? How could you have a genocide in both those countries, which are supposedly Christian countries? Well, they were Christianized, but uh, Jesus didn't say go and make... Um, converts, did he? Matthew 28. He didn't say go and make converts of all nations. He said go and make disciples. And uh, so all those countries might have been supposedly 90% Christian. They were probably 90% nominally Christian. Maybe it was 9% really Christian. And so a lot of my family forebears uh, and friends uh, died in that conflict as moderates that refused to take part in the killing. So I'm from a, a, a I'm fourth generation out there, which is amazing. My, my great-grandfather uh, and grandmother went out there as pioneers in 1925. He died on the job when he, in 1941. His daughter took over the translation project of the Bible. So in Burundi, I'm, I'm known as, uh, you know, Rosemary Gilbo's great nephew. Um, consequently, I didn't want to go there. I wanted, you know, I didn't want to build on someone else's foundation, and I had a very specific calling. So this is me, not so far away, Woking. What's that, about 15 miles away? I was in Woking. 
uh, as business development executive for going places, which uh, has probably gone bankrupt now. I don't know if it's 16 years on. But uh, that was my job. And I, and I was praying this prayer, which I hope you'll pray this evening. We'll close in prayer. And this is my prayer. God, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. It's not rocket science prayer, is it? But the consequences of that prayer, if we mean it, if we're not disingenuous, see, many of us bargain with God. I'll do that, Lord, if you'll uh, line all things up, if you'll pay the bills, if you'll pave the way by, by you know, providing for all my needs up front, uh, if you promise to take care of my children, if you, you know, I'll do this if dot, dot, dot. And so we bargain with God. And C.S. Lewis says God can't bless us until he has us. And when we try to keep areas of our lives that are our own, they're areas of death. In love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. So on the basis of that, what are we holding back? Because I think most of us, if not all of us, we do hold things back. And according to that, that quote, whatever we hold back is, is festering, rotting death. And in love, he claims all. He says, don't bargain with me. So maybe tonight, we'll just see, as we look at choices again, highlighting areas of, you know, idolatry, essentially, where we put stuff that comes before God and that that needs to change. Uh, so that was my prayer. Uh, I, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I was in that job in, in, in Woking, and then I took time out. I went to do a one-year preaching course in London, just off uh, London Bridge. And for that year, I was saying, bring it on, Lord. I was 24 at the time, no girlfriend, no strings, and nothing to stop me doing anything, going anywhere. And I said, I don't want security. Security is a mixed blessing because when we're secure in and of ourselves, we don't need God. Amen? Mm. <laughs> that was very lame. Um, but I think it's probably reflective again of do, we, do you agree with me? Because actually we do. We all aspire to security, don't we? And if we aspire to security, then we put our faith in the security and not in God. And the safest place to be is, is to be in his hands. He's got massive hands, by the way. And he can take care of all our needs. And uh, so it came to the end of that course, and it was the second last day, and I was railing at God, saying, flippin' hey, answer me, Lord. And, you know, silence, and everyone else had their jobs lined up for coming here, their securities. And, and uh, this guy tracked me down, and I received a scribbled piece of paper with a note on it saying, ring this number. So I rang it up, and uh, it was a man who, who, who wanted to meet. So I was like, well, I don't know who he is. So we met up the next day in Bishopsgate in the city, and uh, this guy said, uh, my name's Robert, and I've been praying, and I believe God sent me to you, and he wants you to go to Burundi and be involved in youth and mission and evangelism. And I told you there's a history there, but consequently, I'd been there. I, I drove a truck from England to Kenya in 1996 and popped in on, on Burundi, and I, I saw where my grandfather, great-grandfather had died, and I said, right, I'm never going back. I've, I've, I've done the family route thing. So this guy coming and saying, uh, I believe God sent me to you, that was very, very... Uh, specific and, and actually not what I wanted to do. I said, all right, Lord. Well, I said to him, all right, th thanks, weirdo. I'll think about it. I'll be spiritual and pray about it. And uh, I went back to my job, and I was in front of the computer. I said, all right, God. So they kept the job open for me in Woking. And I was there in front of the computer. I said, all right, God, if you want me to go to Burundi, well, that's a, that's a big change. And um, that's going to mean leaving family, friends, security, career. Might get killed. People have tried to kill me. Um, so I want a radical sign right now in front of the computer. Radical sign to justify radical change of career right now. And I didn't wait long. I took a phone call, and the voice on the other end, out the blue, said, do you know anyone who wants to work in Burundi? <laughs> so I sort of... Uh, pe people, thought, people thought I was even a bit more weird than usual in the office. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I said goodbye, I packed my bags, I got, I, and I went, and I went. Well, I, probably six weeks. Uh, from the time frame of getting the phone call, that phone call which, you know, if, we, if we're not followers of Jesus, I don't know any visitors here this evening, but, you know, that was either God, wasn't it, or that was a coincidence. And, and I think that uh, it takes faith to believe in coincidences when they keep on happening. And I think most of us here would agree that wasn't a coincidence, that was a God incident. The God looked down and he said, well, you know, here's Simon Gilbert and he's got his issues, but I, I, he's up for it. I'm going to use him to change the world. And so I had the farewell party, packed my bags, and... Uh, and I was just about to leave when that guy, Rob, rang up and said, Simon, I'm really sorry. We misunderstood what the Burundian uh, uh, church the brothers were asking for out there. They, they, didn't, they don't want an evangelist preacher type. They want a secretary for the bishop. I was like, what? <laughs> so, you know, not the most ecclesiastical people. And uh, it wasn't my skill set, passion, and gifting. So, but it was too late. I'd had the farewell party, so I had to go. <laughs> and... and uh, and I went out, and actually I went out to north of Rwanda first, because if you look at that map, Rwanda's about the same size north of, of, of Burundi. They, they used to be called Rwanda-Rundi, so it used to be one country until 1962. So they've got the same root ethnic issues, post-1962 divergent histories of how that uh, played out. 
But Granny had been out there. They were the first white people, Bazungu, to be married in Randarundi. And uh, they spent most of the time in, in Rwanda. So Granny, uh, once Grandpa died, age 83, I'll talk, talk maybe a bit about her later, she went back out to Rwanda as a widow. And she, was, uh, she taught me. She taught me the language. So I had, I had four months with her, sat at her feet, literally, uh, just listening to her and her, her wisdom. And for those four months, I was saying, God, please. So picture, you know, probably up to that beam. That's where I was living at the time, in a place called Byumba in the north before the Ugandan border. And uh, there I was with Granny. And for those four months, I was saying, Lord, when I get down to Bujumbura, where I now live and work with the family, uh, please, I, 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 I don't want to be secretary for the bishop. Please, Lord, have mercy. Uh, <laughs> And um, please let me work with Scripture Union. Scripture Union is youth. I got converted at a Scripture Union uh, house party as, as a kid, teenager. Um, and it's interdenominational. You see, if I'm Anglican, I'm Anglican. But if I'm Anglican out there, the Anglicans love you, and then no one else will have you. Whereas uh, Scripture Union is interdenominational. My vision is youth nationwide, being the transformation of the nation. So that was my prayer in the north of Rwanda. This is 1998. I don't know whenever you got on email, but that, that's when I first got on email, ever, in 1998. And I sent out an email to a few mates, maybe 50 mates in England, say, guys, pray, pray that I work at Scripture Union. Please pray that I don't work for the bishop. And uh, and meantime, meantime, in Bujumbura, they they heard this Mzungu guy was coming, and they they were praying, God, please send him to us. So you got those prayers going on for for several countries, you know, for several months. On the second last night in Aranda, Granny prayed me off, and I left the top of the beam to about the top of the nave, uh, the capital, Kigali. And I went to, to one guest house just for 10 minutes to meet and greet Rob, who'd flown down from London, that guest house. At the very moment that the head of Scripture Union Burundi stopped off on a four-day drive to three countries away. And we looked at each other and went, eh, because it was three men from three different countries in transit to two different countries, praying the same agenda, meeting in one guest house in the capital city for 10 minutes. Another coincidence. It wasn't, was it? That was a God incident again. And, uh, and I can't say that I'm living God incidents every day, but... Uh, if you come to him empty-handed, which, again, in Wanish, it's really hard because our hands are stuffed full. But see, it says God gives where he finds empty hands. And I was totally empty-handed. I mean, I, I'd left a pucker job. You know, I went, to, I went to Harrow, so I went to a good school. I'm from a wealthy background. Um, I was on that conveyor belt, if you like, to success and affluence. Maybe we'll talk more a bit about that later again. But uh, I, I, I had offered myself to be stripped of that, and then I had been further stripped by having a, a friend uh, stealing most of my money off me. And I arrived in Burundi the next day, coming down that road, passing Gozi Bubanza to Bujumbura, and I had 300 pounds left in the world. And I was like, bring it on, Lord. You know, if you're real, you've got to be faithful. Isn't that right? I mean, if he's not real, pfft, let's all flatten your face and then crawl back to England, doing a bit of humble pie and get a normal job again. That was my reasoning, you know, but, but I did believe he was real. I knew he was real, so I knew he'd intervene. And the first day he showed me he'd intervene because, you know, I've written 167,000 emails in that 15 years, 16 years, and uh, the number one, the first email of those 167,000 was I tracked down an internet cafe in the capital and I sent out an email to my 50 mates and said, guys, keep praying. I think the Lord's doing it. That wacky meeting last night in, in, in Kigali, please pray that, and I need a computer. That was my first email. I sent that out. Um, I sent it out in the morning and an old Etonia friend of mine in Whitehall he woke up and he prayed God I've got this computer who do you want me to give it to and he switched it on and, ah! as he got this request from Central Africa do you see God gives where he finds empty hands that promise I love claiming the promises of scripture and Philippians 4 verse 19 says and my God will meet all your wants according to is that right no and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. And that was the start of a crazy journey, and it, it has been phenomenal, and I did expect to die. And um, I was single, I counted myself expendable. Um, people I care about were killed. We, we just drove around very nut, you know, dangerous roads. I was, I was turbocharged for the gospel. I, I was like, you know, I'd got to the stage of uh, what Paul writes in Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So win-win. You know, he goes on to say, what shall, I, what shall I desire? I actually desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but convinced there's more work for me to do, I'll be around a bit longer. So it's a win-win. And uh, our work was very fruitful, and it grew very fast, and, and we started doing all sorts of uh, different things. That, that's just the, the, the book that's coming out to, actually in two weeks' time. So I'm sure you, Charlotte's going to clobber you at some stage with that one. You haven't got a choice. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited about it because it's a daily infusion of passion. Uh, to make your lives count. And hopefully this evening's talk will give you a bit of a taste on that one. 
So we ended up setting a charity called Great Lakes Outreach. So I work under Scripture Union out there, but my sort of theology of mission was that, well, just to identify the best people out there and get behind them to see them transform the nation. So we have identified incredible leaders of phenomenal passion, gifting, integrity, vision, and we are changing the nation. And I've got so many stories, again, to, to talk about that. I mean, it was just exciting. A few months ago, I was preaching at the National Prayer Breakfast, and um, this lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, Simone, Simone, Oranye Buka. Simon, do you remember me? I said, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. She said, uh, 15 years ago, I was at your Scripture Union youth camp, and uh, now I'm a member of Parliament. And it's like, yes! You know, that's our, that's our aim, is to see the trans and it, transformation of the nation, and it takes a long time. And, and so when I go to schools now, every, just, I almost always tell that story. I said, look, don't limit God. Don't limit your, your dreams. You know, who, in 15 years, where are you going to be? Are you going to be a lawyer for Christ? Are you going to be a... Are you going to be a businessman? Are you going to be an artist? Are you going to be an engineer? Are you going to be in Parliament? Have big dreams for him. But uh, the privilege I've had is that, I'm, thank you, Lord, I am still alive. And, uh, and I get the privilege of seeing, seeing the incredible fruit of uh, our investment, our, our wise, guided investment, I believe, in the lives of great people. Now, one of the many things we've done is that we've built this, this conference center. We're the fastest-growing group in the country, Scripture Union, planting regional offices. It was very exciting. We were bombing around preaching, seeing thousands, tens of thousands of people converted. It's a very fertile uh, mission field out there. But humanly speaking, it was dependent on me, which is not a good missiological model. You know, we're not meant to create dependency. We're meant to empower, create self-sustainability. And... Uh, so we sat down with the Scripture Union board and said, all right, so, you know, what's the plan? If I die, uh, we'll, we'll, when I arrived, we were bankrupt. So if I die, we've had this nice little blip of growth, but we would go back to bankruptcy within a year. So what, would, what should we do so that we can be self-sustaining? And it was their idea, their ownership of this project. Uh, they said, let's build a conference center. And so we built this conference center, and it's an excellent conference center. If you come out to Burundi and you put on TripAdvisor, find out which is the best hotel, we're number one. Um, and, and, and it's all for the glory of Jesus. It's called the King's Conference Center because it belongs to the King of Kings. It employs 53 people, average family size eight, so that's 400 people that are eating every day because of it. Silas now was interviewed, the head receptionist, and uh, he was asked, you know, what is KCC to you? And what he said probably wasn't, strictly speaking, true, but his sentiment, I echo it. What is, what is KCC to you, Silas now? KCC is the hope of Burundi. You know, go, oh, yeah! That's a, you know, they believe in it. And, uh, you know, one of our mantras would be excellence in Jesus' name. So Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as for the Lord, not for men. And so it generates tens of thousands of pounds. We plow back into pastor training and youth camps and evangelism, discipleship, and pioneered the first AIDS, Christian AIDS project in the country. So it's been absolutely stunning. And uh, we've got challenges because we, we want to grow onto the next door site. So there's the, there's the crew. There's the Gilbo crew. And uh, as I told you, I expected to die. I never thought I'd make the age of 30. Never thought I'd have the, the joy of getting married and, and becoming a father. Thank you, Lord, for, for that gift. And... Um, We've got three kids now, and that's definitely enough. Thank you very much. But um, I've got uh, this girl. I'll talk about her in the talk. But uh, that was taken in 1997, and that was taken this year. And my daughter is named after her, and she's our babysitter. And uh, there's an incredible story behind this girl. So just uh, remember her as we move on in. Uh, any cyclists here? I've just... Uh, I, uh, we've just done a, a tour of Burundi as a fundraiser, had an absolute blast. If you're into cycling, I promise you, I guarantee you, I'm not say best 10 days in a decade, but best 10 days in five years. That's, that's, so any of you interested in that, come and see me afterwards. Oops, that was, that was pretty grim. That was a guy who nearly died on the job, uh, had a very serious accident, but praise God. You know, when you talk about Ephesians 6 and the helmet of salvation, he fell off, his helmet cracked in three different places, and, and it was quite traumatic at the time, but praise the Lord for for his survival. This man um, is just about the most amazing man I've ever met. He's a phenomenal guy, trained as a lawyer, and he leads an indigenous missionary movement. And there's so many things that we do with this guy, but I'll tell you about one thing, because it's quite topical, because in a month's time, we are sending out probably about 750 young people, evangelists, and they will go out into the bush, 35 different areas of the country, and they will get their heads kicked in. And they will cast out demons. And they'll heal the sick. And they'll do the Acts of the Apostles, essentially. You know, we read about the stuff, and it's true, it's not happening much in Wanish or, or, or maybe in this country in general, for, for a number of reasons. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to have a, a satisfied, satisfying, coherent answer as to why there may be more miracles in Africa. 
you know, it's difficult, isn't it? There's certainly more dependency. There's no doctors around. You've got to pray. Um, there's more hunger for God. You know, we struggle to squeeze in a seven minutes of praying a day, and out there, well, there's 80% unemployment, so you've got more time, and people are more desperate, so they pray, and, uh, and there's that virtuous, virtuous cycle of seeing fruit, of seeing healing, so praying more and believing more, and then there's a very a clear, clear spiritual battle in terms of uh, demon possession and rule by fear, the witch doctors, so, you know, you don't mess around with the witch doctor, and so that, that's a very, you know, scatter, scatterbrain answer to a very difficult issue, but um, I would love your prayers for this. He's asked me to get your prayers. This is uh, our movement called Harvest for Christ. And next month, those 750 guys, that's a lot of man hours, women hours of evangelism, isn't it? 750 times 14 days times 10 hours a day. Last year, we sent out 762, and they led 18,000 people one-on-one into, in the coherent discussions into relationship with Christ. And all sorts of crazy miracles in the mix. So one lady was very antagonistic, and some of our colleagues and friends and neighbors are antagonistic. Um, and we respect that, don't we? But um, this one group, basically, well, the lady said, go away, we're not interested. And so they're beating a sort of hasty retreat. And then um, the lady said, actually, all right, come back. If you heal this demon-possessed girl, we'll listen to you. Well, there's a challenge, isn't it? Don't just talk a good game. Show us the power. And so they gather around this girl that the whole community knew was demon-possessed. They prayed over that girl in the name of Jesus, and all sorts of men and horrible voices spoke through that girl, all those demons, and they were cast out in Jesus' name, and she was free. And uh, on the spot, that antagonistic lady and 20 people gave their lives to Christ. Well, you would, wouldn't you? And you saw that higher power. It's beautiful. Um, so basically, no one, no one has to, but uh, I've just got... A sheet which hopefully can work its way around. The benefit I get, that's, when I'm back in England, I'm just trying to get more people to pray for us. So I'm not asking for your money. I'm not asking for any of you to come to Burundi, although any cyclists, you'll love it. Um, but essentially, if you sign up on that thing, I'm just going to send you news, and you get to pray for it. I'll ask a few in about four weeks' time, say so they're about to go out, and then during the thing, I'll send out some crazy stories. And we've done this for eight years. We've seen 1% of Burundi come to Christ through this action. We've done it for eight years. We've seen 100,000 people come to Jesus. And yes, we're committed to follow-up and discipleship, and we've, we've equipped the pastors beforehand, and we go out and we take guys, uh, the local church guys, with our hardcore nutter evangelists, so they see how to do it, so it's modeled to them, and so it becomes more sustainable. That's, that's, that's one activity of a whole load of incredible stuff they do. Some, you know, another story, just to give you an idea of the context. This lady was given the choice of how to die. She could choose to be macheted to death, or clubbed to death, or if she had five pounds, she could buy her bullet. And she didn't have five pounds, so she chose to be clubbed to death. And she was cracked on the back of the head, fell in a mass grave, buried, nine of her family already dead in that grave. And someone a few hours later walked over that grave and heard a whimper. And they fished her out, Frida, and she was still alive. And the killers were still there, high in their witchcraft and, and uh, jujus and drugs. And um, they, thought, they were freaked out. They thought she was a ghost. So they just let her walk away, this bloodied mess. And now look at her, beautiful young lady. She's married a pastor. So two of her own kids, and she's adopted four kids from the other tribe. And it's, we can sort of get that, but, you know, in terms of the power of the gospel to overcome. Uh, there we go, that's it. Excellent. So that's, that's a bit of context, if you like, from where I'm coming from. And I hope it encourages you, and I hope the rest of this encourages you. I'm not about uh, making people feel inadequate or, or, you know, whatever, negative, guilty. It's... Um, it's a privilege to follow Jesus. And Jesus says a lot of challenging things, doesn't he? In Luke 12, 48, he says, to those who've been given much, much will be required. And I suspect most of us will take that on the chin this evening and say, I have been given much. I know I've been given an extraordinary amount. And I'm accountable for how I use that. And so my accountability before God has meant responding to that call to go to Burundi. It won't mean that for you, but what will it mean? And let's have ears to hear for that. So Choose Life is the name of the book uh, that's coming out in a couple of weeks. It's, um, it's taken from uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, where we read, This day I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. So I'm going to come out with, with ten choices for each one of us <clears throat> in our journey uh, with Christ. First one is you can choose safety or adventure. And adventure doesn't mean being a nutter in Burundi, uh, but it means a rejection of, of safety 
at all costs. And I think um, we do embrace safety naturally. We love our comfort zones. We don't like stepping out of our comfort zones because by definition it's uncomfortable. And on this level, I think there are two groups of people. There are those who say yes and those who say no. And those who say yes are rewarded with the adventures they have. Those who say no are rewarded with the safety they attain. Will we embrace the adventure of calling rather than settle for the, exist- the safety of existing? You know, life is meant to be an adventure. It's not a problem to be solved. It's, a, it's an adventure to be lived. Uh, I always thought I would die in an ambush. We, on one occasion, we got back in the evening, 40 people had been killed that day in, in four ambushes, and, and we'd got through. And in one ambush, this guy was shot through the face. Um, bullet went through his face, you know, they riddled the whole bus, and uh, I'm not sure what happened to the other people of the bus, but he survived. Um, but his face was completely decimated. In a sense, he was fortunate to get sponsorship uh, from one of, I think it was World Vision, for, for reconstructive surgery, and they had multiple operations to rebuild his face, but even after all that, he still couldn't speak. But his eyes, you know, we can communicate a lot through our eyes, can't we? And uh, because he couldn't speak, he took a, a, a pencil and a piece of paper and he wrote this, God never promised us an easy journey, just a safe arrival. And, and this evening, you might be going through a really tough time, I don't know. I think life is tough, isn't it? No matter where we are on the planet, and we've got different issues, but most of us... You know, things, things, things trouble us, you know. We're concerned about kids going off the rails or, you know, financial stuff or health issues. Talking to someone who's had health issues, chronic fatigue for the last 18 months, that's, you know, that's something I, I've struggled with. And uh, he didn't say it was going to be easy. I think only we, products of a Western post-war world, could, could believe that coming to Jesus meant life would get easier. For other, most cultures around the world, it doesn't make it easy at all. We read about the persecuted church all the time, don't we? So are we going to be open to saying yes to adventure rather than at all costs clinging to safety? That's the first choice. Linked to that would be fear. Are we going to live by fear or by faith? And uh, whenever you make a key decision, I just urge you to... And I'm just trying to give you some of the lessons I've learned from extreme environments. Um, we all fear. You know, fears sometimes are a good thing, you know. When I've got close to a crocodile, quite often in, in Burundi, um, you know, the fear is a good thing, isn't it? But we're not meant to make all our decisions from a place of fear, and, and I think whenever something significant happens, have a check in your spirit. Am I making decision fundamentally out of a place of fear or of faith? It's very real to me taking three little kids, eight, six, four, to... You know, we were the most dangerous country in the world. Now we're maybe only the 10th most dangerous country in the world. Um, but, you know, I don't want to act out of fear. And the best thing, you know, those of us that are parents here, the best thing we can do for our kids is to model them a life of faith, not of fear. Don't live from a paradigm of fear. I remember driving up on the roads with my colleague, and it was very dangerous. It was the most dangerous road in the world. And my colleague leant across and said to me with that glint in his eye, he said, Simon, isn't it, isn't it exciting? We are immortal until God calls us home. Isn't that right? I mean, we're not idiots. Sometimes there's killing and going up ahead. I came back. You know, it's not a death wish. But actually, no. Everyone else was scared. People were dying in those areas. We were willing to risk our lives to go into those areas. People needed to have faith and hope in Christ. And we weren't going to be ruled by fear and just with everyone else fly over them, uh, we would engage with them. So uh, you trust him with your kids, trust him with your finances, trust him with your future, with whatever issue we've got this evening. Choose to live not by fear, but by faith. And then when you have people like me come, um, sometimes you can sort of end up feeling guilty. And I'm so not into guilt trips, you know. Some, some, some missionaries are really effective at giving you a guilt trip. You know, you losers in Wanish. You have sold out. You're all about your new carpet fitting extension on the house. You know, that's not, that's, that's not, that's not what I'm going to say. Uh, or it could be, you know, people are dying and, you know, just two pounds. I, I've done this because I have been very struck by the fact that my pastor's brother died in his arms because he didn't have three pounds for the medicine across the counter. I mean, that's a sick world, isn't it? Three pounds for a life. Drives me mad. 
But you can't live like that. You can't, you know, I'm not going to have a beer in the pub because that's, that's a life. You, I, you know, you can't live like that. So I'm not about giving you a guilt trip, but I am about giving you a gratitude trip. So one of the most salient and uh, positive experiences, or no, not a fun experience for me, was, was getting death threats. And I had a guy to come to my house with a grenade to blow me up, and he wrote me a nice letter saying he was going to cut out my eyes. Now, was that a fun experience? No. Was it a good experience? Yes. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world. I had nightmares. I had to vary my roots around time, town and live at someone else's house for a while. But um, it was a great experience because for the first time in my life, I said, thank you, Lord, for these piddly little things. Thank you for the gift of eyesight. It's a gift, isn't it? It's not a right. Ask a blind person. And yet we live in an entitlement culture. Be it Woking or Wanish, uh, Wanish or, you know, I used to live in uh, Maidenhead. You know, we're from, most of us, you know, the better end of the spectrum, the more wealthy end of the spectrum. But anyway, all of us in this, in this nation, we tend to live in an entitlement culture where it's all about my rights. And the direct correlation of entitlement culture is extreme ingratitude and grumpiness. You know, our national pastime as Brits is moaning, isn't it? And I come back and I just want to smack people in the face when they start complaining about everything. It's like, you don't realize how blessed you are, but that's probably the most, not the most pastoral approach to trying to seek change. Um, but, but you know what? I thought I'd be dead by now, and I'm still alive, and I'm so grateful to still be alive. And I rejoice in the gift of life. And grateful people are happy people. And maybe if you're unhappy, maybe there's a correlation with that with a sense of entitlement. So let's, let's live. We, we can choose. We can make choices. You can choose to live grateful lives. And I want to say choose to live grateful lives instead of guilty lives. The incredible grace of God. Do you remember that picture? I said, I said keep it in your mind of that precious girl who's 19 now. I love the way how the Lord just weaves... Uh, our lives together because she, I held her as a one-year-old in that first picture and then 18 years later she's our babysitter and my daughter, I, when, I, I remember saying, Lord, if, if you ever give me a daughter I'm going to name her after that girl and the reason is that girl started her life um, thrown away down a toilet so she started her life down a toilet, she was found she was fished out of this toilet, covered in feces and somehow her neck had got stuck in the, in the toilet, and, and so she hadn't suffocated. And they put, they put um, antibiotics on her umbilical cord to try to stop the infection. Um, anyway, she, she lived, and, and, and she weighed just a few pounds, and she was cleaned off the filth, and she was fed through a straw like a little bird. And, and what they didn't realize was that they put too much antibiotics on that, and so she was, she was deaf. She was completely deaf. And part of her beautiful story is that when she was nine months old, a pastor came and anointed her, anointed her with oil, and from the moment the anointing oil came on her, she screamed. She screamed for three days, and people didn't know what was wrong. You know, he was trying to be a blessing, the poor pastor. Uh, uh, <laughs> but the reason she screamed was that she was healed. And she heard for the first time, but people couldn't get that. She's a nine month old, she can't communicate. So, so it was only three days later when someone slammed the door, and she jumped like that, that they realized she's healed. And her name is Grace. Love that name. Any grace is here tonight. That's my favorite name. Because that's, that's, got, that's, that's my story. I hope it's your story. That whether we're multi-merging rapists, pillaging idiots in Central Africa, or Azari, or self-absorbed people in Wanish, we all need his grace, don't we? And he reaches down, he picks us up, and he cleans us up. And he, says, you're, he takes the filth on him on the cross, our filth. And he cleans us up. He says, you're beautiful. You're made in my image. I love you now. Come on! Live. Live for me. And do it from Grace not from guilt. Gratitude, not guilt. One lady in, in, in Burundi, she had a horrible husband. There's a lot of uh, wife beating out there. And uh, he used to beat her up the whole time. He was very demanding. He'd write a list of, of tasks for her to do every single day that she had to do uh, before he returned from work. And every time she, he came back from work in the evening, he was so demanding, he'd go through the list and he'd tick off the task. If there's anything less, she got beaten up. Consequently, every day she got beaten up. And then she was you know, probably happy to be released from that and that he died. And uh, a few years later, she was able to remarry again. She married a, a lovely man who didn't beat her up, who just loved her and wanted to see her flourish. 
and he empowered her. And uh, she was cleaning the house one day whilst he was out of the office, and she came across a school piece, you know, little piece of paper behind the sofa. She pulled it out, and it was one of the old lists. And she read through that list, and to her astonishment, she realized that she'd done everything on that list that day. You see, what, what guilt couldn't motivate her to do, gratitude had. Much more empowering, isn't it? So let's live from a place of gratitude, not guilt. That's your choice there. Next one, um, which is linked, I guess, is, um, is pity or compassion. You know, so you could listen to me and, and uh, you can hear some terrible stories, and I, I'm not majoring on them. I've got, lo- I've got very, loads of very grim stories um, and loads of beautifully redemptive stories, and it's purely a matter of time. We haven't got enough time to share all those. But, you know, when you see those appeals for Niger or Somalia or wherever on the TV, or the emaciated little black kids, you know, it's so grim, isn't it? And I, it, they definitely elicit pity. But like me, you just want to turn over and watch EastEnders or the game, you know, Brazil 2014, whatever, because that you can get your head around. It's just too grim. It's too overwhelming. And uh, you can't change the whole world, but you can do your bit. And my agenda is not to get you, well, I'm asking you prayers, that'd be good, but it's not, you know, it's not saying you've got to do, you've probably got other mission partners here, haven't you? And so we can't say, I'm going to change the whole world, but we can say, I'm going to, we're going to strategically get behind this neck of the woods, and we're going to see long-term transformation through investing uh, people and prayers and resources. I, I was very powerfully impacted when I went to Brazil on my first ever missions trip, and, and uh, you know, we are slightly misguided in thinking that in three weeks we, we are going to save uh, seven million Brazilian street kids, and it didn't quite happen. Uh, but on that first day, we arrived in Sao Paulo on the main square. And, you know, these street kids are considered vermin by the police. They're shot at night, and because all they do is steal. And uh, we wanted to reach out to these precious little screwed-up, abused children that from day one had been forced to fend for themselves. And they attacked us. It was I've been in much more dangerous situations in my life, but that was the scared, most scared. I've ever been, as they raped, you know, pelted us with broken bo- glass bottles and we fled and got police escort. It was very frightening. Now, that evening, um, we were in a, you know, a small group just processing the experience, and I wept, I wept, because this little kid had, was so screwed up and he'd instilled such fear in me. And he was representative you know, of seven million. And what a horrifically overwhelming uh, problem. And as I wept, the, 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 the team leader said this. He said, pity cries... I was crying, and then goes away. But compassion stays. So pity cries, emotional response, but then goes away and doesn't engage, whereas compassion stays. And I'd love us this evening to say, I'm in. I'm going to stay. Whatever that staying means, I'm going to get involved in something. I'm going to weep, but those tears are going to be beyond emotional. They're going to lead to action and engagement. And to do that, the next choice would be um, either cynicism or hope. I think a lot of us have got cynical. A lot of us have legitimately got cynical with Africa in terms of it just being this black hole that we pour money in, you know, down and it just disappears. Well, I hope I've already shown you that uh, our work is very strategic and not in that way at all. We're empowering people to, to see the transformation of the nation. We're doing self-sustaining stuff. It's been beautiful. I didn't tell you about gorgeous project we've got with cows, but the vision of the cow guy is to kill every Brindian cow because they're useless. They produce one litre a day. Uh, you think you own the cow, but you're owned by the cow because you have to send someone with it 24-7 so it doesn't trash other people's crops and uh, so the kid doesn't go to school because he's watching the cow. Uh, and our guy, our project, we bring in uh, crossbreed Frisian cows from Tanzania that produce 10 to 15 litres and we give them to a pygmy who's the lowest of the low and he, at the end, he's never seen a six-pound note. Our biggest currency is six pounds. And he's never seen a six-pound note. And at the end of the month, he's got, he's got 60 pounds of disposable income because of all that, all that milk that he's generated. And, and his kid can now go to school instead of watching, watching the cow. And, and the cow is kept in one place. There's loads of manure that they can use on the crops. And the cow, being in one place, has not called, caused intercommunal strife because, you know, it's in one place. Uh, and this, the neighbor's a bit annoyed, maybe, but actually the pigman can say to him, well, wh- why don't you plant, plant cow grass and I'll buy it off you because I've got disposable income. So it kickstarts the whole local economy and they all come to Christ in the process as they're lifted out of poverty. Stunning. Beautiful. But I think a lot of us have got cynical. 
you know, I like working with young people in general because um, hopefully they've still got ideals and dreams. And it doesn't have to be the case, but often the longer we go through our lives, and we are a mature bunch, is that fair to say, this evening, um, you know, um, you can be totally young at heart. I'm going to be talking about my, my granny later, you know, 83, still going strong, very, very young at heart. She didn't have a cynical bone in her body. She was still a complete dream and idealist. So the answer, I guess, is to be young at heart, isn't it? Whatever age we are. But to reject cynicism, which uh, is such a sucking, sapping uh, attitude, and to em- embrace hope, hope that we can see the transformation of the nation. You know, there's so many wrong things with Burundi that I could give up and get discouraged. But no, I see, I see communities, I see hills that are now schools and medical clinics, and we're building a hospital starting in September, and we built the, the, the best, well, the only English-speaking boarding school in the country. Within two years, it's already one of the top four schools in the nation, and we've got the best orphanage in the country, and these are 20-year visions of raising up a new generation of leaders. You know, it's a long-term commitment, isn't it? Marching to the beat of a different drum to, to be shakers and shapers for the nation. Don't give up on hope. I remember... Uh, being with a friend of mine who was an evangelist, to show you how poor he was, he once, uh, embar- in an embarrassed way, he came to me and said, Simon, could you, could you just lend me, some, could you give me enough money, could you, could you give me five pounds to buy some shoes, because every time I preach, I borrow a different friend's pairs of shoes, and they're all fed up with me now. So that's how poor he was. And I was with him in his open sewer house, you know, stinking mess, and uh, he fed me a sacrificial meal, and and... I said to him, David, you know, I saw the joy in his face. How can you have such joy in your stinking circumstances? And his answer wasn't meant as a rebuke, but it was. He said, Simon, how can I not have so much joy when I've got my Jesus? Very humbling. As uh, we've often got so much stuff. And uh, there's a difference, isn't there, between accepting our circumstances and being resigned to them. And acceptance, resignation just closes the door of hope slams shut, we give up, but accepting our circumstances but still be seeking to change them keeps the door of hope wide open to God's sovereign plans and purposes for our life. Um, some of you have heard this, 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 the story of the starfish, but uh, I could have shown you a picture of a little boy I was with who, who was dying and that his dream was to see the sea before he died. I was preaching in South Africa this was a few years back and, and his name was Bongani and, and we drove from Johannesburg down to Durban and that was his dream, to see the sea before he died. He'd buried his mother, he'd buried his father of AIDS, and he had AIDS. I think he was 11 years old. And he wasn't much fun to be with for three days because he was dying, he was in pain. But when he saw the sea, his eyes lit up, and we paddled into the water uh, in his swimming togs, and he, you know, he got his dream, and then this great big crashing wave came, and he's bricking himself, so he got back out quickly again. And then, then we drove back to Johannesburg, and, and uh, he was part of a project called Starfish, and the starfish story, you know, you know, there's been a storm and tens of thousands of, of starfish have been washed up onto the shore and a starfish out of water is going to die and you've got this young boy, little boy in his youthful zeal, he's going along the shore, he's picking up one by one and weighing them back in. But there's, there's so many, so what difference could he make, right? And that's exactly what an old man came up and said to him. Little boy, look, look, there are so many, you're wasting your time, give up, what difference can you make? Cynicism. And what did Hope reply? He listened respectfully, bent over, picked another one up, threw it in, and said, well, it made a difference to that one, didn't it? There's a lot of potential in this room. And I hope I will give every drop of sweat and blood the rest of my life to just being involved and have a chance to throw hundreds of thousands back in, in Burundi's. And you don't have to do it in Burundi, but do it. Choose to do it, however long we've got. And so Bongani, you know, it was, it was very powerful because he's dead now. And uh, as we drove back to Johannesburg, uh, my friend who started the Starfish Project, uh, he'd flummoxed me the question, what's God's purpose in Bongani's life? And it was cold in the back of the bucky of the truck, and he snuggled up into the crook of my neck, this snotty-nosed, husky-lung little boy who was dying, and I was broken to the core. What's God's purpose among his life? Well, if we blessed Warnershians or Shelfordians or whatever, wherever we come from this evening, if we get it, if we get a glimpse of, you know, yes, this is, this is what I am here. This is, 
This is why I'm on this planet. I've got a revelation of God that he, did, he died on the cross for me, not for me to be nice and respectable. That's our challenge, isn't it? Because most of our neighbors and colleagues are very nice and respectable. But no, this, I've got to somehow lay hold of this dynamite message and, and make it relevant and, 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 and live it out authentically. That's a challenge as well, isn't it? Because why don't many of our colleagues or, or neighbors or friends ask us about it? Maybe it's because we live like, just like they're living. And we're meant to be modeling something altogether more more precious and real and costly. Anyway, cynicism or hope? I hope hope you're filled with more hope this evening and and eyes to see the potential of what you might do in life. Success or significance? Many of us are successful, um, and success is good. But even if you're the most successful person in this room tonight, don't think you did it. You know, all our achievements is a combination of being born in the right place, being given opportunities. You know, I suppose in a sense I could look at my ministry and think, wow, I've been super successful. But you know what? My story, it's all grace, isn't it? I mean, that phone call, did I do anything to earn that? No, there's the confluence of circumstances to continue having great stories of God's answer to prayer. It's all grace. So whether we're high-flying businessmen or, or lawyers or whatever, you know, it was because we, hopefully we had a, maybe we had a stable family upbringing and we went to a good school and then, yeah, we worked hard, but it's all, it's all God's grace and give him the glory for that. And, and once we do that, then we can move from success to significance and then the rest of our years, we can choose to make them the best of our years. And we can make that choice even if we're 75 years old this evening. You know, however long we've got, let's make them the best of our years. Apathy or urgency. Last few, apathy or urgency. Again, easy lessons for me to learn um, because we used to pray each morning almost, almost like a mantra. It was almost, or a liturgy uh, in our scripture and prayers in the morning. We'd play, someone would say, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing us safely to the beginning of a new day. Because we were listening to people dying during the night as the shells fell. I remember preaching on the Congolese border, Gatumba. And uh, I preached from the parable of the ten virgins. You know the, the story? Basically, some were ready, some weren't ready. And you know, some parables are rocket science, some are pretty clear. This is a clear one. Basically, my message was, Jesus is coming. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? Jesus is coming. Nobody knows where. when. Are you ready? And some people chose to get ready that day, came forward in repentance. Others maybe said, no, I want to sow my wild oats or live my own way for another few more years. Maybe next week, maybe next year, whatever. Two days later, I was on my motorbike going back in that direction, and uh, the soldier stopped me because those people were dying. A rebel attack, they were dying. And it struck me as never before how urgent this message was. Who could have believed two days later those guys who lifted that message? It would be their, their time to meet their maker. And there's no ambush out there on the road, is there? Uh, and so it's much harder for us to live with a sense of urgency. There's a lot of apathy, or, or perhaps all our energies are taking up in, in slogging our guts out in the office in the city, or just um, doing something that's definitely worthwhile, but uh, there's a danger in that it sucks all our lifeblood out of us, so we haven't got um, any energy to give to things of eternal significance. And then I thought I'd just add in uh, retirement. Retirement or continued engagement. You know, uh, quite a lot of people think of retirement as coasting and self-indulgence to the grave. You know, you've worked hard your whole life. It's, retirement isn't, isn't a biblical concept. If we've got a revelation of Jesus and what he's done for us, there's plenty of time to rest in glory, isn't there? And uh, actually, it's difficult. Because here, we're in a culture that doesn't value age. In Africa, they totally value people who are old. Because... Um, you know, it's all that wisdom that's, that's lost when someone dies. So Granny, let me tell you a bit about Granny. When she was 83, Grandpa dies, she goes back out as a widow. 15,000 widows in her diocese. She knew that out there she'd be you know, an old wise woman, whereas here, you know, stick, stick her in an old age home or something. Um, and, uh, and so there she was, and, and I got to sit at her feet, and the privilege of that, you know, she was Corrie Ten Boom's translator when she came out and preached around prisons, and she, she, was, she taught me the nuances of the language, because it's a tonal language, so you can't even hear the difference between gusura and gusura, uh, but, one means to, but one means to visit and one means to fart, and you, you, you really want to get it right, otherwise you end up uh, farting on lots of people when you're trying to visit them. 
Um, so I had this great privilege of working with her. Anyway, she started a widow's meeting. In the first week, 30 came to this widow's meeting. Then the next week, 80, then 100, then 200, then 300, then 400. Then they had to split them into two groups because there wasn't enough room for them in the cathedral. Then they started taking the widow's daughters and teaching them a trade. Um, because without a father there, they were routinely taken for sex. And so Granny is part of this incredible, empowering movement. You know, ding, wrinkly old battle axe, you know, sort of 83 years old. You should walk at this speed, literally. But Cambridge educated, totally sharp and on the ball. Fast forward three years. She's 86, and this is her last day in action on planet Earth. And, and packed cathedral. She lets rip on them for an hour. And then um, there's a last photo of her taken alive during the traditional enhore dance. And uh, then she said goodbye. French, you go, adieu, au revoir. Adieu till God, au revoir to the re-seeing. She said adieu. Like she knew she was going to die. And she waddled home and had a game of Scrabble and then went to be with Jesus. What a great innings. What a great end. And, you know, I don't sound too flippant, but one of the benefits you get when your grandparents die is maybe they might leave you a bit of money. Uh, granny, Granny, she just left us a few disgusting hand-knitted jumpers. You know, she, she was awesome. And please, any old people, don't be offended by that. She was a rock star. I love her. What, what a high bar she set. Because you know what? She, she, she knew when C.S. Lewis says, anything which isn't eternal is eternally out of date. She lived that reality. She didn't get excited about the new carpet fitting. She was all about people and seeing transformation. And, and God just gave me a lovely encouragement a few years ago. I was, I was preaching in Chicago, and it was a white people's church. But there's one black guy in the corner, and afterwards he came up to me and said, you know what? Your grandparents changed my life. Some random suburb in Chicago. And it was like, the Lord just gave me that encouragement that, you know, my grandparents, who were very capable, grandpa got the top award as the top mathematician called the Senior Wrangler at Cambridge University. And when he went on the mission field, his lecturer said, his professor said, no, what a waste of that brain. But he translated this into the, the, the language. He was using the lives of millions of people. And Granny, too. And, uh, you know, what are we going to live for? I think tonight is a chance to just reassess, no matter what our age is, what are we living for? What are we giving our lives for? And some of us are single, and some of us are married, and you, you marrieds go back and discuss. Say, how does this apply? What is changing? Have I bought into a Western domesticated Jesus? And what needs changing? Hopefully, we're open to that. Lastly, which is linked to that, possessions or people? I love the way Granny so obviously modeled that it was all about people and not possessions. And in a very materialistic culture, and particularly in this neck of the woods, uh, that's a challenge, isn't it? A friend of mine saw um, a man who was in his rags, old, in his 80s, praying with an empty bowl in a refugee camp. She went over and sat next to him. She said, what's your story, old man? And he told her how he'd walked six days to get to that refugee camp. He'd watched his wife and kids hacked to death, and his house burnt down. And so he had lost everything in the world. And that was all he was, in his rags, an empty bowl, praying. And he turned to her at the end, that's a horrific story of woe, and he said, Madame Missionnaire, I never realized that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. Well, in a sense, what a rich man. I mean, none of us would aspire to that sense of richness, would we? But what a clear revelation he had, having been stripped of everything of what really matters, and he'll be dead now, but he'll be in glory and uh, free from all the grimness of what was his life before. You know, I come back from an environment where people manage to say that, and come back to here where, if not hopefully us in this room, but many of our loved ones, our colleagues, our friends, down the street, neighbors, have got everything to live with and nothing to live for. And he wants us to get out there. That's your mission field. I'll do it in Burundi, you do it here. There's a lot of work to be done, isn't there? There's a lot of work to be done. So will you choose life? This day I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose Let's pray. Debbie, do you want to come up and the musicians, do you want to come?
And uh, to me, this is always, please don't check out. We've got a few more minutes left, um, but it's easy to just let our minds wander. To me, this is always the most important part of, of, of times of sharing, is that when we invite the Holy Spirit just to apply his word to our lives. So let's pray with the psalmist. In Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, he, he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we invite you by your Holy Spirit to come right now and speak to us, deep calling to deep. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. I want to add another choice control or surrender because actually I think that's one of the hardest challenges we have in Wanish. Simon's already told us we don't need to go to Burundi and actually that's a that we need to hear that because we can listen to him we can listen to all those stories and we can think it's only going to mean something as it means to Simon if we head off and do what he's doing in Burundi but he hasn't called us to Burundi but he has called us to where we are just now. And the choice we've got here is to live life to the full as God has offered to us with all those choices that Simon has laid before us plus all the 200 or 355 more in his book. Each day we have the choice to say, am I going to surrender to what God has for me today or am I going to control it? The home group I'm in traveled through Simon's book with the help of the DVDs. And our biggest question was, if we're not going to Burundi, what then? For some of us, it led us to a trip to Uganda. It happened to be in Uganda, but that wasn't the most important part of it. One of the lessons we learned on that was letting go of control. We thought we were going to go to do And actually, the lesson we had to learn was to go not knowing what we were going for and to go on pilgrimage with God and to let him speak to us and work through us and show us what he wanted to show us, which for each one of us gave us a challenge as to what that meant when we came back here. We're all called to be here. And we need to know that freedom that Christ offers us in our own lives. And the people around us don't even understand what is on offer. And right now, in our village, in our communities, wherever we are going back to this evening, there's people who haven't experienced the joy that we know. And it's up to us to live the life that God has called us to do with adventure, without guilt, with compassion, taking our hands off the safety net, being willing to be used. That is the huge challenge, but that is the huge excitement of what tonight is about because all God says is give me your empty hands. Stop trying to control it. Give me yourself and I will show you. It's the simplest thing and the most difficult thing. We are so British here. I'm thinking what can I dare ask us to do? If you feel that you would just like to indicate to God that you want to let go of that little bit more tonight, I want to encourage you to stand and to hold your hands out. And we just continue to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would see our empty hands, that you would know the desires of our hearts, that you would know that our hardest question is, what does it mean, Lord? What does it mean to be free, to be who you have called us to be in this place at this time, to be your instruments here, to love as you have loved, to see the world as you see it, and to be the people you have called us to be. Fill our hands now. For each one of us, it's different. Stop us from looking around and thinking we have to be like everybody else. It is only 
what God wants me to do that matters. Fill our hands, Lord. Fill our hands with what you want to fill them with. And help us and equip us and help us to make the right choices day by day. Amen. We're going to continue singing, but if once the band has finished, you have that sense that actually you would love someone to pray with you, I'll be at the round at the front. Nick and Francis, if you could maybe be